Western countries, mainly America, Germany, and Britain, are supposed to be sending some of their best tanks to Ukraine. Do not come to me with any nonsense about the best tank here. It's, it's, <laughs> and here I am asking that really, very question. <laughs> yeah, it really is an absurdity. Um, quite simply because it depends on so much on context. So yeah, you, the classic error of politicians is to demand how many tanks have you got but well, that, that's that's an idiotic question because how many tanks have you got which are operationally effective today how many will it be next week um the number of tanks on its own is meaningless it's a one of the people who who opened doors was churchill churchill so okay he was first lord of the admiralty he wasn't in charge of the army he was in charge of the navy but because he was in charge of the navy that gave him access to large quantities of steel uh, the first British tanks had naval guns in them, massive, absolutely. I mean, if if you want to sort of ask a, a you know question about what's the significance of the tank in the First World War for Britain, I would say half the answer will be about the propaganda value, which has been introduced, which is creating chaos among the Germans. Of course, that's exaggerated. People were desperate to find out what a tank looked like. So there were artists' impressions. Uh, so if the Germans, for example, had tried to attack the Soviet Union in 1936, they would have had a severe problem. It just wouldn't have been possible. Now, there's a very good case study in this whole what's the best tank of the Second World War uh, question. Um, and the Soviet Union did their best after the war to pump out the message saying the T-34 was the best tank of the Second World War. Well, not really. They did have homemade tanks. Um homemade tanks interesting yeah with a kind of pointed nose and that was designed to drive into buildings so uh so they're essentially ram tanks i mean people who first saw them on the battlefield referred to them as mad max vehicles <laughs> the m1 tank is essentially a jet engine with a huge amount of armor around it so it it's a gas guzzler um, it needs a lot of support, um, very sophisticated electronics. Um, so what I reckon that there will be is quite far east in Poland, there'll be American uh, maintenance bases. Did you know that in 1918, as America was entering World War I, Germany, that is, the German Empire then, mounted a huge offensive with the hope of winning a decisive victory before the arrival of fresh American troops, supplies, and weapons. Although we're not about to send troops to Ukraine now, that's not the plan anyway, our tanks will be going there, hopefully soon. That may be the reason why Mr. Putin is now mounting a major offensive, to win a decisive victory before more Western help, including more American help, arrive. While this development is cause for concern, we should also consider this. A huge offensive, made in a hurry, could backfire on Russia, as it did on the German Empire in 1918. Hey there, Newspeelers. Today is February 10, 2023, and this is Adele, the host of a History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? For example, what's the history of the GOP or the Democratic Party? What are our environmental, economic, scientific, and cultural histories? 
And how about the history of past wars, like between Ukraine and Russia? Or the history of women's rights and revolutions, like in Iran? And of course, there's China's long history. They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. After all, why shouldn't we expect intelligent entertainment? So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. I was going through the news that I had read in the last three to four weeks about Western tanks pledged to Ukraine. There were many articles, as I'm sure you can appreciate. Two of them stuck out for me because their headlines capture what's happening now. The first one is a January 25th New York Times article with the following pithy headline. Tanks, finally. I think the headline says it all. We all rejoice when Germany's Chancellor, Mr. Olaf Scholz, finally agreed to send tanks to Ukraine. This, of course, came after President Biden also agreed to send tanks. The second one is a February 9th Wall Street Journal article. That's just yesterday, with the following disappointing headline. Tanks aren't arriving in Ukraine despite promises from European allies. As this article explains, many European countries seem to be backing out of their earlier pledges to supply Ukraine with modern Western tanks, which ironically leaves Germany in the very position that it was desperately trying to avoid, which has been the only provider of a large number of tanks to Ukraine. Well, what about the US, you may ask? Aren't we sending them tanks? Yeah, we are. Here's the thing, though. US officials are now saying that it may take up to two years before our Abrams tanks arrive in Ukraine. So that's the latest big news I got about Western tanks destined for Ukraine. Hopefully by the time you listen to this podcast, the news will have changed somehow so that we actually do send some tanks to help Ukraine's valiant struggle against Russia. When this war started, Ukraine had about 2,000 tanks. In comparison, Russia had about 12,000. According to the New York Times, these are all Soviet-era tanks. So, if and when Germany's Leopard 2, the UK's Challenger 2, and America's M1 Abrams tanks are actually sent, the thinking is that they will be a big battleground boost to Ukraine. But for now, the real value of these tank pledges is that they are hopefully boosting morale in Ukraine. So they essentially provide propaganda value. And that's how the history of tanks really began, as a big propaganda hype for Britain during World War I. To better understand this history, I spoke with Dr. Alaric Cyril, who joined me from Manchester, the United Kingdom, where he's a professor of modern European history at Salford University. Dr. Cyril is a historian with research interests in several subjects, including German, British, and Chinese militaries. He has been a visiting scholar and visiting fellow at the University of Oxford, and also an honorary fellow and distinguished visiting professor at German and Chinese universities, respectively. He's the author of Genesis Employment Aftermath, First World War Tanks and the New Warfare, 1900-1944. It's a 2015 book. Another book is Armored Warfare, a Military, Political, and Global History. It's a 2017 book. 
and he's also the co-author of Kurdish Armor Against ISIS, a 2021 book. To learn more about Dr. Searle, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode, where I've also provided Amazon links to these three books as well as others. So, stay with me as Dr. Searle and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Searle, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. So, Western countries are now sending tanks to Ukraine. Germany is sending the Leopard 2, the United Kingdom, your country is sending Challenger 2, and the United States, my country, is sending the M1 Abrams tanks. So, with all this talk of tanks, I'm wondering, is there a consensus about the best tank in history <laughs> and of course when i ask that question i mean best tank in the context of its own time right yeah uh i mean this is uh, an interesting uh, uh question and um it's something i've been teaching a module at my university university of salford on armored warfare for over 10 years oh so i'm glad i asked <laughs> right yes and normally in the first session i just say do not come to me with any nonsense about the best tank is. It's, it's, <laughs> and here I am asking that really, very question. <laughs> yeah, it really is an absurdity. Um, quite simply because it depends on so much on context. So yeah, you could have the best tank in the world. Um, so let's say the Tiger II. You think that's the best tank in the world? Is that um, from World War Two? From the Second World War. Yeah, so yeah. About sixty-eight tons, a monster. Um, it might be on flat, solid ground, the best tank. But what happens when you come across a bridge, which can only take 15 tons? It crashes <laughs> through the bridge. Um, the next issue is quite clearly um, that certain tanks will function well within certain combined arms groups. So um, you could have, say, 10 Panther tanks in a German tank division. Um, you might also have some obsolete Panzer III's. Um, so if you come up against a Soviet tank army, then it might have a very good kill ratio, um, but then it might be overwhelmed. So it's really about the combination of weapons. Um, a great tank can be a, not such a good tank if the radios are not very good in it. So it depends on a multiplicity of factors. And normally uh, the role it will play within... Um, a tank division, an armored division, uh, a tank brigade. Um, how good are the commanders? You can have a very good tank, but if you haven't trained in it, you may not be able to get the best out of it. Um, now, there's a very good case study in this whole what's the best tank of the Second World War uh, question. Um, and the Soviet Union did their best after the war to pump out the message. Okay. Uh, there was a, in, the, in terms of the First World War, there was a big kind of, um, you know, debate about who invented the tank first every nation wants to say well we invented it first um it, it was britain uh i mean there's no historical question about that but if we if we come to the soviet union saying the t-34 was the best tank of the second world war well not really um, not really that was okay. propaganda. so there's certain things about the t-34 which are very very innovative uh for the time so essentially for 1941 Sloping frontal armor. Uh, <clears throat> the Germans had um, the main anti-tank uh, gun in Barbarossa was the 37 millimeter. 
which just bounced off the front of the T-34, partly because of the sloping armor. Um, the wide tracks were a very innovative and positive um, aspect of the T-34. Uh, muddy conditions, snow, uh, they were much more, much better fitted to crossing that kind of terrain with those wide tracks. However, that's only part of the story. Uh, a significant part is the poor ergonomics. So what we mean by ergonomics is how easy is it for the crew to fight inside that machine? So cramped conditions, poor visibility. And if you look at the number of uh, T-34s, obviously the statistics vary, but essentially the Germans blew apart lots of thousands and thousands of T-34s, partly poor tactics, certainly at the beginning of the war on the part of the Red Army. Um, not good ergonomics. When it came to the T-34-85, the turret had to be increased in size um, in order to accommodate the 85mm gun. Um, that had the result, there was a sort of overhang of the turret. So the Germans aimed at the join between the essentially the turret ring. So between the turret and the hull, and you didn't even need to penetrate the armor, just the kinetic energy of the shot hitting the tank would just simply uh, crowbar the turret, sometimes 50 meters into the air. So there oh, were wow. all kinds of disadvantages uh, around the T-34. So based on what you're saying, um, Dr. Searle, a nation with different, with vastly different trains, let's say uh, Russia, which has, you know, going from the south back then the Soviet Union, Azerbaijan, all the way up to the, its frozen tundras and, and, and the North Pole, it's, it's got different conditions. And the British Empire had many different types of lands from deserts to, you know, s snow capped uh, mountains. So do armies usually have different type of tanks or is it that they have relatively same type of tanks they just retrofit them for different conditions well it depends what historical era you're in obviously so um in the interwar period uh there was a, a trend towards uh tanks for particular types of role so the french and the british um had an idea that infantry support tanks would be one way of doing things. You would then have cavalry tanks, which could go faster. Um, and they were simply modeling um, this idea on partly the First World War, their own experience, but also um, the idea of traditional arms of service, that being, if you like, bolted on to um, tank design uh, with, with not very positive results. I see. And the, the other aspect of the, the, the problem, if we could just sort of maybe finish off the, the best tank argument is that sure. um, certain tanks will have have certain weaknesses so the french char b1 tank in 1940 was actually not a bad tank but it had one appalling achilles heel and that was um a radiator grill on the side of it so the german anti-tank gunners just aimed at that and it wasn't <laughs> as heavily armored and the, the shot tended to go through um the french uh two-man tanks uh, were really bad designs so they were designed as a sort of follow-on from the french renault ft17 which was a a light infantry tank with a 37 millimeter gun its aim was to really bunker bust so there was a german machine gun emplacement that would fire a 37 millimeter shot into it so for that purpose it was actually pretty effective um it was quite good at going in and out of uh, deeper shell holes um some of the heavier tanks had problems with that 
Um, but they took this concept and continued it into the 1930s. So you then had two-man tanks. The weakness of them was that the commander was supposed to command, load the gun, and fire it. Uh, and if you look then at the superior German designs, which which had higher crew numbers, so the Panzer II had a crew of three, Panzer um, three and four had a crews of five. Um, they oh, were just wow. much more flex, you know, much more flexible. Um, another weakness of French tanks: um, some of them had radios, but the radio batteries tended to die very quickly. So every tank will have some kind of Achilles heel. Yeah. Um, let's continue what we're talking about in the context of your book, which is titled Armored Warfare and Military, Political, and Global History. To start with, as a point of clarification for me and our audience, uh, perhaps more for me, the term armored warfare is much broader than just tanks. Am I correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, it's quite deliberate, um, the use of the term armored, armored warfare. So okay. um, armored Armored warfare um, is not uh, simply a way of saying tank war in a, in a in tank warfare in a in a different way. Uh -huh. um, it's something which in, encompasses armored vehicles. So um, a tank. Uh, there are many exceptions to, if you like, an attempt to define it. But generally speaking, I think the simplest definition is a tracked vehicle um, with a turret which can traverse three hundred and sixty degrees. Okay, and that would be a tank. Uh, there are exceptions, the Swedish S-Tank, uh, for instance, um, but armoured warfare encompasses, if you like, um, a combined arms unit with armoured vehicles. So what do we mean by armoured vehicles? Well, mm -hmm. a vehicle which at the very least can resist machine gun fire. On the modern high-intensity battlefield, that's probably not going to be enough. So you're looking at conceivably mainly tracked vehicles. Um, it could be self-propelled artillery, it could be self-propelled guns self-propelled assault guns. It could also include um, uh, wheeled vehicles, armored cars designed for a battlefield situation, um, infantry uh, carrying vehicles, so the BMP-1. The Bradley M M2, M3 is almost a bit of a hybrid. It's not really a tank. It's an infantry support vehicle, infantry fighting vehicle. Uh, were the U.S. Hummers that were like, for example, we all saw in the Iraq War and Afghanistan War, are they considered part of the armored uh, units? Um, again, it depends on the situation. Uh, okay. I'm afraid to say I'm going to give you a lot of answers which begin with <laughs> depends on. Depends. You sound so, like a lawyer, Dr. Searle. Well, it's a good question with the Humvee because it's, it's a pretty, if you compare it to a normal civilian car, it's a pretty tough vehicle. Yeah. You can fire bullet you can fire bullets at it. There's reinforced glass. It can take quite a lot of punishment. Um, I mean, you could see this in the capture in this retaking of Mosul from ISIS by um the Iraqi army in 2016-17, um, supported by the US and, and other allies in terms of uh, intelligence, artillery supporting fire. Um, it can take a lot of punishment. So if you're, for example, we'll come to this later, but um, the Kurdish YPG in northern Syria, uh, their armored force was main, mainly consisted latterly of Humvees. Um, so in a sense, you would, you would consider it as part of an armored unit. Um, there is an alternative. Um, again, it depends on which set, uh, which um, decade you're in. But uh, one term which is used is mobile warfare. 
um, simply to take account of the fact that you may have vehicles which are not that well armoured or either armoured in terms of the, the thickness of the skin of the vehicle or the firepower may be simply a machine gun. Uh, but you're using the principles, if you like, of armoured warfare. Um, so you've got competing terms, mobile and armoured warfare. Speaking of competing terms, um, you used the term self-propelled artillery which makes me think that yeah. it actually can move on its own. Yep. So if that's the case to a lay person like me, who doesn't know much about military weapons and equipment, what's the difference between an artillery that can actually move and a tank? Okay. We come back to the definition I gave you of the tank. So um, a self-propelled artillery piece could be, it could be a very heavy piece of artillery. It could be, you know, 120 millimeters. So people have tracks, um, it might be fully enclosed and it might not be. Um, if you send that vehicle into um, a fast-moving armoured battle, it will be very quickly outflanked and probably shot up from behind or the side. It's not very good at defending itself because its purpose is to lob very heavy artillery shells. And you, you can see this in some of the video material from the Ukrainian war. Uh, a mobile artillery piece will drive forward. They'll get the coordinates. They'll fire off shells. They'll pack up and they'll move out as fast as they can because they may be hit by aircraft. They may be hit by... Because they're so vulnerable. Fire. Um, and they probably they can't... They, they can't turn like a tank can and to, to uh, fire yeah. in different directions. Yeah, and the, the the shells that they're firing are artillery shells, so they're not anti-armor shells. I mean, if they hit a small vehicle, if they're lucky enough to manage that, but <laughs> they're essentially firing, um, if you like, through the air like yeah. this. They're not firing straight forward. It's kind of like a projectile motion. Um, yeah. In, in the last 30 seconds we have left of this segment, I'm just wondering, when did armored units begin to show up in war? In World War One, was it just a... Or when the, the tanks go Britain, you, you guys invented it. So was it just that, or did they have more armored vehicles as well? Well, in terms of, of an armored unit, uh, I'm not quite sure if you could say in the First World War there was something comparable to an armored unit. That's more, a, um, if you like, a development of the 1930s when uh -huh. European armies started to experiment with different sizes of armored units. So it began with armored um regiments and brigades the general trend was towards armored divisions um the french were not quite so convinced about that because they saw tanks as support vehicles or I cavalry see. vehicles um the germans were the first to really have a proper armored division um but you did have if you like tank detachments so in the first world war there were a range of armored vehicles uh, i mean what's interesting about armor in the first world war is that you have the first attempt to have um, amphibious tanks, the British experimented. Amphibious? Oh, okay. Flotation devices. You had armored bridging vehicles in the First World War. You had signals tanks in the First World War. Um, I don't I don't appreciate Wars. what that means, signal tanks. What does that mean? Signal tank is a tank with a huge aerial on top of it to improve communication. So communications oh, yeah. in the First World War were often based around the telephone. Uh, radios were very... Um, vulnerable to um, uh, malfunctioning, essentially. They weren't mm -hmm. as strong as they were later. So the idea was you would have a communication tank which could move forward as the battle moved forward. 
Um, I see. The big problem in the First World War was not necessarily breaking through an enemy's line. It was keeping the momentum of the offensive going. You I also see. had supply tanks. Uh, you had infantry carrying tanks in the First World War. So many of the elements that you see later are there in a very embryonic form in the First World War. Speaking of World War One, we'll be back after a short break to talk about tanks in World War One, World War Two, and tanks in wars within living memory of many members of our audience. We'll be back. Back in February of 2022, when Russia invaded Ukraine, I spoke with Dr. David Stone of the U.S. Naval War College in Season 2, Episode 8, about the history of wars in Ukraine. He took us back to the year 1654, when Ukrainians thought that they had entered into an alliance with Russia, <laughs> but to the Russian Tsar, the Ukrainians had signed on to become subjects of the Russian Empire. As the war dragged on in Ukraine, last year in Season 2, Episode 20, I spoke with Dr. Chris Blattman of the University of Chicago. The purpose of that podcast was simple. I wanted to know why we humans go to war. And Dr. Blattman didn't disappoint. He gave me five succinct reasons why conflict triumphs over compromise. The links to my conversations with Drs. Stone and Blattman are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Searle about the history of tanks. Dr. Searle, I want to start the segment of our conversation by sharing a personal story with you. Before COVID, my family and I vacationed in Nova Scotia for about Three days of that two-week vacation, we stayed in the city of Halifax. And of course, being me, I had to visit the Halifax Citadel. So why am I sharing this with you? The reason I'm sharing this with you is that they had a walkthrough interactive reconstruction of World War I trenches, complete with sound effects, medic tents, uh, artillery shells, and machine guns. And as I was preparing for this conversation with you, I thought of that experience. And, you know, in the last segment, you said breaking through enemy lines. And, you know, when we were talking about tanks and these trenches were wide and deep, were tanks effective in trench warfare in World War I? Um, yeah, up, up to a point. Uh, um, I mean, the, the British made some fairly serious errors in the use of tanks. Um, the big battle, uh, which was in, in November to December 1917, where tanks showed they were able to do was the Battle of Cambrai. So the Germans had got wise to um, the use of tanks. So the original British tank shape was a lozenge shape. And the idea was that uh, because of the all-round wraparound track, the tank could go into a trench and then come out again. So the obvious countermeasure is you make wider trenches, so it can't it can't get out. So what the British solution was to was to introduce something called fascines. So it's essentially um, a large. I'm sorry, did you say fascines? Fascines. Okay. Um, that was the name they gave them. They they were basically a bundle of a bundle of wood of branches tied together very tightly with a chain which was then mounted on the front of the tank, held in place by a chain. And then when it arrived at the trench in front of it, this bundle would be dropped into the trench. Um, it wasn't a bridge, but what it did was it enabled the tank to crawl back out of the trench. Oh. Uh, and this was actually very effective. So they, um, in the First World War, you had various countermeasures um, 
against tanks. Uh, and again, these the, these don't go away. So um, the first countermeasure is you obviously have a trench. Um, the second countermeasure is you have an obstacle. You can block a road with anything that you come up with. Um, in the Second World War, there were tank traps, so big pieces of metal welded together. Um, in the First World War, the Germans produced three million anti-tank mines. A oh, very wow. simple device with a spring, uh, a wooden box. So trenches were one means to try and defend against tanks. But again, for every measure, there's a countermeasure. So so the British did come up with this idea of the scenes to try and assist the tanks getting out of the trench. When you were referring to the obstacles, uh, you mentioned metal welded together. Is that similar to what we saw earlier in the russia Ukraine war we would see in the streets of uh, Kiev. Uh, yeah, I mean that's that's been a, a long-standing anti-tank uh, device to try and just block the path of a tank. Obviously, if you have engineering vehicles, then you can clear them away, probably not without too much trouble. I mean, to make them a, a real headache, you'd have to sort of bury them in concrete. So, so it would be a, a bit more of a, a task to remove them. I see. You know, you mentioned that uh, Britain invented the tanks, and after a while, other countries adopted it in World War One. And in in thinking about that, I realized that it must have been a big decision because inventing it and producing it and introducing it into battle and creating, um, you know, support units, maintenance, and all of that. What was the politics behind all of this? Uh, you know, it's not like you go to a general and say, "Here, we have a new weapon," and they say, "Oh, okay, they're probably resisting this, right?" Yeah, well, well, there's um, there's a lot of really inter interesting aspects to this. Uh, so, in terms of Britain, um, the one of the people who who opened doors was Churchill. Churchill. So okay. He was first Lord of the Admiralty. He wasn't in charge of the army. He was in charge of the navy. But because he was in charge of the navy, that gave him access to large quantities of steel. Uh, the first British tanks had naval guns in them. So because he was operating operating as the first lord of the admiralty he was able to cut through red tape which somebody in the army perhaps might not have been able to do um now the germans had a very different approach they shied away from the tank uh, and this wasn't a sort of example of conservatism this was really uh, they they had the position of what's called the late adopter approach to technology so why would you invest in untried technology when you've got some serious um natural resource shortages so what you want to do is you want to wait until someone else has developed it and then you see is this going to work um, so the germans realized well the way to counter tanks is trenches artillery firing over open sites anti-tank mines they were skeptical of the value of it um, so they saw little point in trying to develop a tank um, at the beginning anyway, um, because it was untried technology. So if you like, it was a rational decision not to pursue the tank. They did actually um, introduce their own tank uh, later on in the war. But they probably benefited from the, all the experience of watching uh, British tanks uh, trial and error fail and, and remodel and, and come up with better tanks. Was there any propaganda? Was this like a big deal when tanks arrived at first and battlefields in World War uh, One? Massive, absolutely. I mean, if 
if you want to sort of ask a, a you know question about what's the significance of the tank in the first world war for britain i would say half the answer will be about the propaganda value oh wow uh, and it's, it's a very you know it's a very very interesting uh story which hasn't quite been sort of gone into so um if you if we go back to 1916 when the tanks first introduced so it's called it's called a tank as a kind of um a way of camouflaging its existence so they they thought that with a tarpaulin over them they looked like water tanks so they were referred to as water <laughs> tanks to try and put the germans That's off, interesting. off, off okay. the scent yeah um as soon as the first announcement was made that there's a new type of armored car which has been introduced which is creating chaos among the germans of course that's exaggerated people were desperate to find out what a tank looked like so there were artists impressions um it was used as a way of saying well look you know we british we don't have a big land army we don't have any of that tradition but we've come up with something which the germans haven't come up with british ingenuity will win the war so once the first photographs appeared the press is littered with photographs of tanks. Um, you get tank models, tank money boxes, um, cut out tanks to build for young boys. It, the, the, if you like, the market on the home front is flooded with images of tanks. The first film showing tanks is shown in 1917. Uh, people are really interested, desperate to see images. 1917 is in the middle of the war. The war is still going on. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it then continues. In, there was a, an attempt to try and boost war bond sales in Britain. And one idea which people came up with was to send some tanks that had been at the front line and to have them create sort of mock battles. And then at the end of this display, people would be able to go up to a tank. If they were willing to buy war bonds, they would go up. There were two women sitting inside at a desk and they would get to look inside the tank as they bought the war bonds <laughs> so they this was called the tank bank campaign it was massively successful um and there's an interesting uh, sort of twist of this um if you put red clydeside 1919 into google you will get a picture of a tank surrounded by a crowd so there was a, a general a, well, a kind of a, a big strike over wages in Scotland in the shipyards in 1919. People were terrified of a Bolshevik uprising. It was really about wages. And there's a, a picture of a crowd in Glasgow, which is often used to illustrate Red Clydeside. It's not Red Clydeside at all. The picture's from early 1918, and it's the tank bank campaign. Oh, interesting. Uh, and in fact, yeah. uh, uh, people say the Scots are mean. Um, Glasgow raised next to London the most amount of money uh, through the tank campaign um, in 1917, 1918. Um, so, so they really contributed to the war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and they, there were similar campaigns to raise money for the Navy, for the, for the Air Force, but the most effective campaign for war bonds was based around the tank. So it's a, it's a huge morale booster in Britain. In particularly towards the end of 1917, because of course the Battle of Passchendaele, the Third Ypres Offensive, has been a, a catastrophe, yeah. uh, despite what some of the apologists for Kate Haig will say. Uh, huge casualties, pointless, pointless offensive. Uh, Russia's dropped out of the war. Germany's about to launch its spring offensive. Uh, Britain is not in a good place. Um, you do have the American entry into the war, but that in some ways means a loss of British prestige britain's weak yeah. by it financially the war um so it, it's a, a really dark time the end of 1917 so cambrai 
is a huge boost to public morale. Uh, and these images of the tank are portrayed as this is British ingenuity for all the people that say the war's not going well, we're going to pull through, we invented the tank. Um, let's move forward to World War II, 20 years uh, in time. I've often been fascinated with this question, so I'll ask it. Were German tanks responsible for the Reich's initial spectacular victories? Um, well, I come back to my initial point about the difference between tank warfare and armored warfare. Mm -hmm. So tanks were a significant component in the Panzer Division. So the Panzer Division consisted not just of tanks. And in fact, the number of uh, battle-worthy good medium tanks in 1940 and 1941 is actually quite limited. The, the Germans have still got Panzer ones, which are in some ways more or less a training machine. They've got Panzer mm. II's, which are light reconnaissance uh, tanks. They're not really designed for a heavy armored battle. So there's a limited number of Panzer III and Panzer IVs. And there's also the Czech 38T tank, which was the result of Czechoslovakia being dismembered. The Germans took over the factory. So there's not a huge number of, of um, medium tanks, but they are integrated into armored divisions, which have got armored cars, which are actually uh, very, very good. There are half tracks to transport infantry, um, the support from Luftwaffe units. So the tanks are a, a significant part of this, but there's simply one component, albeit, of the I've, armored division. I've also learned that the French actually had better armored and better armed tanks is that myth or is that uh, real uh i would be a little bit skeptical at that statement so <laughs> um the the tank which had the heaviest armor on the front and probably the best gun was a char b1 but it had two turrets a bit like the the um uh, the grant tank in 1943 which had two turrets again not really a great idea. The, the idea was one was a howitzer and one was a, a sort of an anti-tank weapon. Um, but the Char B1 had uh, other, I've already mentioned the grill, sort of radiated grill on the side, yeah. uh, which was a, a, a vulnerability. But there were other vulnerabilities. So the Char B1 took 60 minutes to refuel, yeah. which is obviously a bit of an issue. Uh, some of the other tanks uh, were these uh, infantry support tanks, which were really too slow. Um, and tanks with a two-man crew, you had then a commander who was supposed to command, load, and fire the gun. So there were simply, the tactics were poor. Um, in some battles, French tanks came off not too badly in 1940, but in other battles, they were decimated by the Germans um, because of a whole range of weakness, weaknesses, poor radio sets, uh, poor tactics, not fast enough, the guns not heavy enough. Um, so the idea that the French tanks were somehow better in certain technical aspects, they were were better than the German tanks. But overall, in the grand scheme of things, they they certainly weren't better. How about Soviet tanks uh, in the minute we have left of this segment? Uh, from one of my readings, I learned that they actually had a huge number of tanks. How do they measure up to German tanks? Again, it depends which year you're in. So the uh, Panzer three and four are, are introduced, I think, first sort of about 1937, 38. Uh, so if the Germans, for example, had tried to attack the Soviet Union in 1936, 
they would have had a severe problem. It just wouldn't have been possible. Um, the Russians concept was based on mass. They wanted lots and lots of tanks. So the first tanks, the BT-5, BT-7, uh, were for the mid-1930s not bad tanks. So they had a 47-millimeter gun, uh, which was fairly effective at that, that time. Uh, when the Germans attacked in 1941, um, again, the numbers are not very reliable, but probably the most reliable estimate I've seen is they had in total 18,000 tanks. However, having a tank and it being battle-ready are two very, very different things. So the actual number of available tanks has been estimated at around 5,000. Oh, that's significantly so less. 18, only, uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. spare part problems, fuel problems, um, all kinds of different issues around maintenance, availability of, um, of spare parts. So although they went for mass, um, they really weren't in any fit state to... Um, deal with the initial German assault uh, because of the, all these logistics and organizational questions. Yeah. Um, totalitarian regimes tend to be very bad at things like maintenance. Yeah. And they, plus they had yeah. purged many of their top generals and officers just a couple of years before, thanks to Mr. Stalin. We'll be back after a short break to talk about tanks in Iraq. And here's an interesting one, Kurdish tanks against ISIS. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Cyril, the United States and the United Kingdom fought two wars against Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Were there any major tank-related developments or history in either of those wars? Uh, well, I suppose the, uh, the the big question was, would heavy tanks like the Challenger and the M1 Abrams, would they be suitable for desert war? Because, of course, they were designed for um, NATO central fronts uh, and a, a Cold War uh, war breaking out between um, NATO and the Warsaw Pact. So... Um, there were a number of questions about, you know, how would they perform under desert conditions? And the answer was they performed very, very well. Um, the um, night sight visions were able to perform uh, after Saddam Hussein set fire to the um, oil fields where there was black smoke enveloping the battlefield. They were able, in some cases, to see through that thick black oily smoke. Mm -hmm. uh, they performed, um, if you like, probably flawlessly you'd have to say against the t-72s which they came up with which was really the best tank in the iraqi inventory what country had uh, sold those uh provided those tanks to iraq where they i mean th Russian? these came from the soviet from, from the soviet well, yeah. well i suppose initially they came from the soviet union and that there was probably machines sold after the collapse of the soviet union um, what you have to bear in mind of course is that 
um, the Soviet Union in particular, they would have an export version of a tank, which wasn't as good as their own version. Interesting to keep their own superiority. Um, yeah, well, not to, in a, a sense, give away all the secrets of a particular machine. Um, and again, if you send your main battle tank to a war and it gets blown to pieces, that's not very good for sales. <laughs> yeah. You know, no, yeah. no one wants to buy a loser, a losing machine. Exactly. Uh, so um, the uh, the British and American armor, I think there, were, there was only in the course of the ground operations, which would cost 100 hours, so not very long, uh, there was only one case, I think, of a, an M1 crew, crewman killed who was actually outside his machine um, trying to unjam the machine gun. Oh. So the survivability was very, very good. Um, one of the big questions was perhaps less about the M1 and the Challenger. It was more about the Bradley and how that would perform. And... Um, its tow missile was actually very, very effective um, against um, Iraqi armor, T seventy two in particular. And Bradley is is uh, Bradley an armored vehicle or is it a tank? It's an infantry fighting vehicle. Is the correct designation, <laughs> um, but it does look a little bit like a light tank. Uh, so there's two versions of the Bradley. Um, one is probably a bit. I think it has a 20 millimeter cannon and the other one has is is more for sort of infantry support. Um, the tow weapon mounted on some Bradleys um, was actually really useful. So the Bradleys would go forward with the M1s and in the, the few encounters which took place between um, American armor and Iraqi armor, the, the Americans inevitably came off much, much better. The training levels were better um the quality of the gun was better they could basically outrange the t72 so they could fire at t72s from a range that the iraqis couldn't hit them at and did iraqis have sufficient number of tanks or was there also a quantity issue on the iraqi side um well by the time the ground war started it was a quantity issue because many had been destroyed um from the air oh interesting um, okay and the overall plan um, of Saddam Hussein to try and defend Kuwait was um, riddled with flaws. Uh, first of all, it was possible to outflank the Iraqi positions um, in Kuwait by, by having a deep sweep through the desert. Um, so, so the entire plan was was really based on false premises. You would think they would be more experienced at war after fighting Iran for some eight years, right? Uh, you would think that. However, the, the issue is if you have a dictator who's very worried about um, a, a military coup, then what they tend to do is they don't allow people to make decisions on their own. So the the whole essence of armored warfare is that you make quick decisions based on a, a rapidly developing situation. But if the Iraqis wanted to call in air support during the Iran-Iraq war, um, then they had to go via Baghdad. And by the time the order was agreed to um, and, and communicated and the aircraft were sent in, the situation had often changed. That's crazy. So paranoid dictators, uh, of course it's crazy, but paranoid dictators are not the best people to uh, to engage in armored warfare. Um <laughs> The problem you have with Saddam Hussein, well, one of the many problems you had was that you have the head of state who's also declared himself de facto head of the armed forces. And that's never a happy combination of jobs, if you like. Yeah. 
Um, let's talk about your recent book. I've read this review and it's just very, I think it's very exciting to talk about. Here's the title, Kurdish Armor Against ISIS. Let's let's get into this, Kurdish Armor. Yeah, I can just uh, hold up. Yeah, copy. Kurdish Armor Against ISIS. I see your book, yeah. Um, yeah, so this was a, um, kind of an interesting project. Um, so um, a friend of mine, um, Ed Nash, who fought in Syria with the Kurdish YPG, um, he returned in 2016 uh, with over a year of combat experience. Um, he'd taken quite a lot of photographs. And um, we sat down and said, well, you know, why don't we do a book on Kurdish armor? Um, so he had some really exciting photographs. Um, he'd obviously gone into action in in armored vehicles uh, and BMPs, which the, the there were a lot of them in Syria. There were a lot floating around. Um, so the what Kurds are BMPs? Just the, uh, the BMP one was a Russian um, infantry vehicle designed essentially to transport infantry across the battlefield. It had a small turret with a seventy-three millimeter gun, which was probably not very good against heavy armor, but against all kinds of other vehicles, it was actually quite useful. In fact, okay. in 2003, in the um, Iraq war with the British and Americans, a BMP did knock out um, a Bradley. Um, so the 37 millimeter gun is nothing to be sniffed at contemptuously. Um, so he had a lot of photographs, had experience from the theater. So we just put our heads together and decided, yeah, let's do a short book. Um, let's look at some of the interesting aspects of the Kurdish use of armor. So one of them was the first armored vehicle they had was essentially, um, I suppose what you call in America, a garbage disposal lorry with <laughs> steel plates put, put round the, the driver's cabin. They painted a, um, a tiger's face and no, I think it was a wildcat's face in the front. And it was obviously a kind of morale booster. Yeah. So if you have essentially village militias um, armed with Kalashnikovs trying to defend themselves, then any kind of armored vehicle is going to be of use. And then they essentially plundered um, plundered old stocks of the Syrian army, anything they could find. They started to capture Humvees off ISIS, who'd in turn capture them off the Iraqi army uh, in, in Iraq, especially around about Mosul. Uh, when that was um, taken over by ISIS. Um, so the, it was a, a, a strange mix of vehicles. And then... Did they have firepower, real firepower? Um, I think they really were armed with uh, machine guns. They did have homemade tanks. Um, they homemade tanks? Interesting. Yeah. So... The homemade tanks were essentially civilian diggers, um, some of them dating back to the 1970s, where they just removed the digger arm and put lots of steel plates around it. Um, as things progressed and more materials started to fall into their hands, they started to get quite good at it. So they had a two-man tank with a kind of pointed nose, and that was designed to drive into buildings. So many of the... Um, if you like, homesteads on the uh, plains of northern Syria uh, were, were mud-built houses, and they tended to be very good at resisting shell fire. 
uh, because of the mud was very tightly packed together. So one of the tactics was simply to drive into these buildings with vehicles, hence the pointed nose. Uh, so they're essentially ram tanks. And they mounted, they built their own turrets, um, mounted machine guns in them. And uh, the tanks they had with a, a cannon on them were essentially the 73 millimeter uh, guns from the BMP-1 because there was just so many of them. So they, they they stuck a turret onto sometimes their own homemade built tank. Is it, isn't this amazing? I mean, I know, I know you do this and, and you've written this book and you're in the thick of this. For someone who's listening to this for the first time, as I am now, this is amazing. It's not like they have factories and industrial parks like, you know, in the UK or here in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is literally sounds like homemade tanks. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what they were. I mean, people who first saw them on the battlefield referred to them as Mad Max vehicles <laughs> uh, because they were, you know, kind of so crazy. I mean, ISIS did the same thing. They had sort of battle buses with lots and lots of plates of steel. Um, I mean, all the factions did this because you're faced with a simple problem. So you have, say, you know, a thousand yards of ground. You've got an enemy with a machine gun in a building. You have to try and cross that thousand yards and not get killed. So what's the best way to do it? Have an armored vehicle. That also you know, can serve as a tank. Mother, mother invention. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so obviously for tank versus tank combat, these were not particularly effective. Yeah. Um, but you did have the um, all sides capturing old Syrian army stock, so especially T-55s. But in areas where there was a, a high instance of Western-supplied anti-tank weapons, um, they were very vulnerable to just having the turret blown off uh, or being destroyed completely. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Searle as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Searle, is the West, and particularly the United States, just sending tanks to Ukraine? Or is it the case that we're trying to create armored units for um, the Ukrainian army? And I ask this question because we're also sending Bradley fighting vehicles, which we, we chatted about, and they're not they're not specifically tanks, right? Yeah. So um, in the case of the US, initially there was a a reluctance to send um, tanks because they feared this might be a kind of red line which could escalate the conflict. Um, now, what's interesting was the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz was criticized for dithering because he yeah. essentially refused to send German Leopard tanks if the US was, wasn't going to follow suit. Um, and I think, although he probably is a bit of a ditherer, I think he was <laughs> probably right because um, if Germany on its own had sent leopards, uh, then I'm absolutely convinced Putin would have started making nuclear threats towards Germany. Um, and he would have been targeting not necessarily installations to hit with nuclear weapons. What he would have been targeting uh, would have been German public opinion, which yeah. is not quite as 
um, behind the war as, uh, say, in Britain, where I think the vast majority of people um, are quite happy for weapons to be sent to to Ukraine. Obviously, there's a difference because Britain's an island and uh, Germany's a lot closer to Ukraine. Um, so I think Schultz was was right to to hold out for um, the Americans sending in vehicles, even if it was only of a symbolic value. I want to ask a clarifying question. It's about politics, but I got to ask it. Uh, yeah. You said the German public is not as uh, enthused about helping the Ukrainian effort as, let's say, British, uh, the British people. Why is that? The Germans are actually getting hit in Russia. So they've really been economically uh, impacted by this. You would think they would be up in arms about this. Um, yeah, well, I suppose it's... Um... I have to qualify uh, when I say they're not quite as enthusiastic about sending leopards. So um, the Germans have taken thousands of Ukrainian refugees in. They're qu quite happy to to act in a humanitarian fashion. But when it comes to actual weaponry, there's obviously nervousness about leopard tanks speeding across uh, Ukraine. The names of some of the, the cities are very familiar to um, anyone with historical knowledge of the Second World War. Um, so the echoes of the oh. German invasion of the of the Soviet Union are, are very, very sort of painful for the Germans. And um, it is essentially a very pacifist society, uh, at least on the surface. So um, the people feel very uncomfortable about the idea, and they just think that if they're not somehow too involved, somehow the war will go away. It is often the, the the kind of attitude I think. Um, so I last time German tanks were in Ukraine was in World War Two. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. I think that's probably true. My my. So there's a lot of details which obviously are not going to be made public, but I think we can guess fairly easily um, what's going to happen. So the M1 tank is essentially a jet engine with a huge amount of armor around it. So it, it's a gas guzzler. Um, it needs a lot of support, um, very sophisticated electronics. Um, if you want to maintain even just the 14 that were initially talked about in the field, you're probably going to have to have US support crews. Um, support teams who can repair the engines. The Ukrainians will have to be trained in using the tank. Um, so what I reckon that there will be is quite far east in Poland, there'll be American uh, maintenance bases. Just like at the border of Poland and Ukraine, just right there to help them. Um, I don't know where they'll put them, but um, they, they will almost, I would imagine, be pretty essential to having the M1s. I would see the presence of M1s as more of a political element. Um, I suspect they won't be sent into combat in the way that the Leopards will. Um, initially, the Germans said they were going to send, I think it was um, 14 Leopard tanks. Um, more recently, just a few days ago, they were talking about 100 Leopard tanks. So really, the That's a big jump. commitment... Yeah, of course, it's a big jump, but it was inevitably going to be the case. So they yeah. just wanted to get it through German parliament, German public opinion, um, say, well, we're only sending 14 tanks, and it turns out to be a lot more um, because there's not a lot you could do with 14 tanks, even if they're very good tanks. And the Leopard is a really good tank. Um, so the maintenance of the Leopards, I, I think they probably will be ammunition shortages in terms of tank shells. Um, so German industry is going to have to start producing 
um, the necessary number of shells pretty fast. Um, and then the Ukrainians will have to be trained on their use. The Germans might try and do this via, say, Poland or other NATO countries. Um, Canada has leopards. The Netherlands has leopards. So you can, in a way, fudge the political problems by having international teams to engage in. in kind of like, quote unquote, the allies are sending uh, tanks yeah. to Ukraine. Yeah. This makes me think of the propaganda effect of introducing tanks in World War One, and there's a lot of propaganda effect here in uh, introducing tanks, uh, Western tanks, into Ukraine. Um, the, the the negative impact of that, uh, to the extent that one can term it as such, is that it's made Putin now hurry and do his counteroffensive now at a larger scale to you know before the tanks arrive. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could always compare that to the Germans' uh, spring offensive in 1918. They have to get the blow in before the American, you know, reinforcements started arriving. Um, this could cut cut two ways. Um, if Putin feels he has to hurry forward his offensive, then he might not be ready for it. Um, there may be a hurried offensive, which then goes horrendously wrong. So it, it doesn't necessarily uh, need to be a bad, thing if Putin pushes his offensive forward. If you wanted our audience to remember just one point about tanks, and we've spent the last hour talking about them, to share, what would it be? Um, I think it would be um, the classic error of politicians is to demand, how many tanks have you got? Well, well that, that's, that's an idiotic question, because how many tanks have you got which are operationally effective today? How many will it be next week? Um, the number of tanks on its own is meaningless. It's about levels of training, um, supply of spare parts. There's a multiplicity of elements which contribute to an effective functioning armoured unit. And often politicians seem to be a bit slow in grasping that, unless they've had any, unless they've had, you know, a military service behind them or you know, had some kind of military experience. This is similar to what you were sharing about the Soviet Union just before World War II, they had, on paper, they had 18,000 tanks, right? But as you shared with yep. me, only 5,000 of them were functional. That's less than third. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Searle, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much, Dr. Searle. My pleasure. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. 
And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.